Welcome to the Final Girls Podcast. I'm Anna Bogutska, and as ever, I'm your podcast host. In this mini-series, we're exploring and celebrating The House of Psychotic Women, the seminal book by Kayla Janice. What do you think? Go ahead, be honest, just tell me. You think I'm insane? Do you know these women wrestling in the green of mud? No! You. you hate me. But it's difficult, don't you understand? It is difficult. I didn't want it to happen, but it happened. No. Over the past few episodes of this mini-series, we have been celebrating and interrogating Kayla Janice's book, House of Psychotic Women, which is, at the same time, a book of film criticism, a topography of female neurosis on screen, and a memoir. I've been talking to filmmakers whose films have a psychotic woman at the heart of them, about a film that's featured in a book that has somehow inspired or influenced their own work in some way. I've spoken to Prana Billy Bond, director of Censor, about Let's Scare Jessica to Death, Deborah Haywood, director of Pincushion, about David Cronenberg's The Brood, Kane Sennis and Hannah Barlow, co-directors of Sissy, spoke about Carrie, and this week, in this penultimate episode of the miniseries, I'm talking to Alice Lowe, the writer, director, and star of Prevenge. Alice is working on her new film right now, took the time out of the edit to talk about Heavenly Creatures, the Peter Jackson-directed story about an obsessive friendship between two teenage girls with overactive imaginations that culminates in a murder. Based on a true story and starring Melanie Linsky and Kate Winslet, the film is a true gem of teenage hysteria and folie adieu. If you enjoyed this episode, please do let me know. You can find me, perhaps not for very long, on Twitter at AnnaBeDemented. And if you wish to support the podcast, you can do so over on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash the final girls, or just by taking a few seconds, leaving us a review on Apple or Spotify podcasts. And with all of that said, please join me in the house of psychotic women. Before we begin, Alice, I just wanted to say thank you very much for making the time. I know you're uh, editing your new film right now, so I appreciate that you've even made the time this evening to do this for me. Oh, thanks for having me. Um, yeah, it's it's nice to actually talk to a person rather than just sitting in an edit <laughs> <laughs> with a lovely editor, I should add. But, you know, most of the time we're just not looking at each other. We're just looking at a screen. Um, but I'm really enjoying it. It's great. So. I wanted to start with a little bit of personal history with you and House of Psychotic Women. What is your relationship with the book? When did you first encounter it? 
Um, so I um, am lucky enough to live near a really lovely gallery that has a lovely bookshop. And whenever I go into this bookshop, it's like a magical bookshop. There always seems to be some magic book that I pick up and go, oh, my God, I'm going to turn this into a film or, oh my God, this has changed my the way I think about life. Um, and I walked in and there was a book called House of Psychotic Women. And I just was like, that's the book for me. I had never heard of it before, just picked it up, read it and was so bowled over by it that I was tweeting about it. And um, a couple of people got in touch and said, oh, I know Kayla. I'll introduce you, you know, um, which was like meeting a rock star or something. Um, yeah. And it was just like nothing I'd ever read before. Um, yeah. And, uh, I just think is, um, I, you know, I recommend it to people all the time. I'm kind of like, oh, you need to read this. Mm. <laughs> and what, what about the writing itself struck you? Um, I think it was how personal it is. It's sort of, um, unapologetically um about an individual response to films that maybe as a feminist you might feel like you weren't allowed to like that you enjoyed but you're not supposed to enjoy them because there's violence towards women in them or there's depictions of female characters who are unhinged or or mad or violent and um it was it was her personal response to those films um and it sort of felt like Oh, okay. It's it's okay to be a participant in in watching a film. You don't have to listen to someone else's rules about what's wrong or right. Mm. You can just have your own unique uh, reaction to it. Um, and the way that she was so sort of open about what you know what her life entailed and what stages she saw different films and how they applied to her own personal story, um, I just thought was incredible. And it was so sort of. Um, you know, there is this illusion that critics and film critics are impartial and that they don't come from a particular perspective. And it's all nonsense, of course, you know. And I felt like it kind of busts that myth that, you know, that we aren't, that critics aren't usually a very small select group of particular type of people. Um, and that it's okay to bring your personal experience to the table. And actually, that's the most honest and truthful way to respond to a film. Mm. Um, and I think it's sort of helped me in the way that I write films, actually, that I'm sort of unapologetic about how, yeah, this is from me and it comes from me. What else could it possibly be as a, as a writer-director? Who else would it have come from? You know, and that it's okay. And it sort of helps you to accept the flaws in your writing and the, you know, the personal quirks, which... To me, I would defend to the death because I kind of feel like we're entering to this corporatization of of art, really, at, at the moment. I feel it as an actor sometimes, particularly, that I'm like, mm. oh, this, there's no authorship behind this. This is kind of just a product, you know, um, that anyone could have churned out. This person can't do it. We replace them immediately. It is very important that this is completely generic in every way <laughs> and that nothing stands out or is um, daring or bold or new. It's it's just got to be a product that keeps people's attention. And, um, and uh, yeah, it sort of feels like it's sort of dangerous to be an author because they can't replace you the weirder the stuff that you do or, or the more idiosyncratic. You can't be replaced. So you sort of 
yeah, I just think it's interesting the way that authorship is is going in terms of television mm. and, and independent film, or, or film specifically, not not independent film. I feel like independent film is therefore being sort of crushed slightly. It is. It is curious that you say that because you know it, it. We do seem to live in a in a moment where, and I've spoken about this before. That I mean, it's been going on for years. That sort of our screens are collapsing onto one another film Mm. is tv tv is film everything is streaming everything becomes content and kind of whether you subscribe to the uh, tour theory or not the thing that you're talking about kind of is that personality the the voice and the intent that goes in behind something it's like the soul thing which um warts and all it's kind of like um I sort of love watching stuff that's wrong sometimes now. It's like, I think that's the other thing that the book teaches you. Like, you don't have to enjoy a film. You don't have to like it, but you might get something from it. You might get something from a bad film, mm-hmm. even if it's like something that surprised you for 30 seconds or something you've never seen before. Um, those moments, are re- they're like a sort of mutant gene in mm-hmm. terms of like, the evolution of filmmaking, I I think, or or of art or of TV or whatever. Um, and also and that what's bad... Oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I was just saying those things seem to be getting eliminated by, by television specifically, I think, and the production, the way that television is produced. And also the things that are bad are completely determined by who you are and when you watch something you know mm. i've had films that i've watched and thought oh this is shit <laughs> and then i revisited them and completely changed my perspective on them and vice versa as well like things that i thought were really special because i watched them at a particular time in my life when i revisited them i was like oh there's really nothing here (laughs) (laughs) i've done that quite a lot with 90s films like 90s Mm. films that were thought of as critically kind of mediocre i've re-watched them and gone this is the best film i've seen this year like what what (laughs) what's happened like is that am i just getting old and i'm just like intolerant of uh or, or or if we genuinely lost something in terms of storytelling there's like mm. I think there's a real sort of um I don't know it's just like I've, I've had that as well with films that maybe were aimed at me as a teenager and I turned my nose up at them and I've re-watched them now and gone god they're brilliant <laughs> they're like really like films that are not considered as being great works of art and I'm like oh my god it's the best it's the best thing I've seen it's the best thing <laughs> so people are like if anyone's anyone got any recommendations and i'm like 10 things i hate about you it's brilliant it's brilliant <laughs> people are like it is genuinely brilliant like, it is genuinely brilliant yeah. like but the energy to those performances it's mm-hmm. like you know I, I i watch something like that and then i get obsessed with like what was it like to film mm-hmm. and then you know when you read oh everyone was having a blast doing it they were having a blast. Of course they were. The energy on the screen is crackling and, you know, fizzing and stuff. And mm-hmm. that's what I'm trying to recreate when I'm, as a director, when I'm making something, I just want that magic and that electricity on the screen. And some would say you can't manufacture that, but it's, to me, it's like a mixture of sort of being relaxed enough to let the unexpected happen. You know, it's mm-hmm. like controlled chaos, you know, and like, 
Um, that's what I think is not as an actor. I don't experience that very much mm-hmm. um, these days, where you're genuinely on set going, "Wow, we're going to get something special here because there's a, that special atmosphere that you just mm-hmm. don't get on many things." Um, so my sort of whole aim is to create that, but you know, whether that's within your Netflix contract when you direct a Netflix film, I really don't know. <laughs> Are you going to bring the magic? Yes, I will. Are you going to allow me to bring the magic? Probably not. Possibly not. You know, you just don't. It's not guaranteed that you're going to be allowed to use the methods that you usually use as a director mm. once you get involved with like big studios or big money or any of that kind of thing. And it's interesting to hear you talk about performance as an actor yourself as well. I'm wondering because rereading the book and even just the the whole book itself so much of it is about the performances about these actresses playing these unhinged roles and I'm wondering if you know um when after you read it kind of if it changed your outlook on your own performances as well I mean um I think it consolidated a lot of things that I felt I I did a screening um a while ago with a filmmaker called Kate Hardy and we we screened Fatal Attraction and I kind of did my defense of Fatal Attraction because I'd read a lot about it and I was like what people when they revisit these this film they see a lot of sexist stereotypes and archetypes that are even created by that film you know 100 percent um you know sort of misogynistic tag but I think revisiting that film I was a bit like people are completely negating Glenn Close's creative input into that film so any to sort of write off these films as being sexist you're actually undermining a female creative's input into that project um, which was few and far between in those days you know how many female producers how many female now you have like a Reese Witherspoon who's you know, multi-hyphenate mm-hmm. all over it, you know. But someone like Glenn Close didn't have the power to be a co-producer. She would, she had to sort of struggle to get her viewpoint about the character and to to fight for that role. And to me, I'm like, well, she won, you know. She got the Oscar nomination. She, who do you remember from that film? It's her, you know. And I think it that that really tallied when I read The House of Psychotic Women that, mm-hmm. and obviously as an actor, I, I kind of feel that as well. I'm like, how many times has my contribution to something been overlooked, even though I'm contrib- contributing creatively, but everyone's assumed that, oh, you know, you're just a puppet. Like mm-hmm. you just did what you were told. And I'm like, I didn't actually, I really fought for that. <laughs> that moment that everyone's saying is great. That person didn't want to do it. And I insisted. So do you know what I mean? Like, yes. and I think there's more of those stories in the 60s and 70s, of course, and 80s, you know. Um, so I think it kind of, yeah, it kind of gives a bit of a a reward that has been, you know, un- unchampioned those performances. Um, mm-hmm. We know they're good, but we tend to think of those women as somehow just victimized because they're playing victims often. Um, but actually, no, they're sort of owning the screen and they're owning... It, you know they they become the winners from from being the victim on screen to me they're, they're the the victor in terms of what I take away from watching that movie so I think definitely that it's it's mm-hmm. sort of um, helped me to realize how 
yeah, it's okay to think these actresses are fantastic actresses. We don't have to think of them as being like, oh, the poor things. Mm-hmm. This is I could do. <laughs> I love that you bring <laughs> up Glenn Close because she's. Yeah. There's also a thing that you know a lot of the performances. I don't know if this is just my own um, thinking, but I feel like a lot of the male over-the-top performances as in like you know the ones where you know they fly into rages or they have these big over dramatic scenes you know I'm thinking of Leo DiCaprio kind of you know spit raging all over the screen or kind of Jack Nicholson having an outburst like those those performances become canonized and then you get something like Glenn Close in Fatal Attraction which is such a brilliant performance there's so much going on on the Mm -hmm. margins as well as right there at the center and I mean that film in particular is is very special because it became this huge cultural phenomenon but I feel like a lot of um the performances that Kayla talks about in the book are kind of thrown aside be like oh you know she's just she's overacting or it's too much or it's kind of too unhinged but I'm like Mm -hmm. you would glamorize the equivalent if it was performed by a man yeah and like (laughs) Serious, and and you can see that over and over again. And if it's a genre film, then even more so. It's like, well, it's not acting because it's horror. You know, you just have to show up and be stabbed or something. Yeah, no, it's it's not fair, really, is it? I think the inverse sometimes happens as well. That sometimes, like, you have someone like Clint Eastwood doing like literally nothing, like <laughs> raising an eyebrow, and they're like, oh, he's amazing. Mm-hmm. And like, you get a woman on screen, and they're like you're not doing enough you're not doing anything it's like Mm. women it's almost taken for granted that you're going to be like I call it like an emotional geezer that you're just going to like like that like come on well the waterworks the faces the crying I mean I love that as much as the next person and god my new film I am doing a lot of that (laughs) I'm like doing it all over the place um but you know sometimes I'm not doing so much and people are like well, you're not doing anything. You're not emoting. It's almost like, you know, it maybe it's quite a male perspective as a viewer that like, well, her face is just nothing. So I can't feel anything that she's feeling. Like, and you're like, God, you're really incapable of reading into a woman's feelings unless she's literally screaming at you. But maybe that is reality that, you know, that's the horror of life, isn't it? That unless you scream at someone saying, I'm not happy, no one's going to read into your face. Like, no one's going to take the time to wonder if you're okay and do a close-up on you like Clint Eastwood to work out what the, what the tiny twitch on his face, what could it possibly mean? What is he feeling? <laughs> you know, like, do people take the time to do it with women? Maybe not. They're like, you know, and that's, that, that is, the, you know, what causes horror. And, you know, I was talking about, like, the yellow wallpaper and stuff mm-hmm. in the conversation, like, you know, most women in history, they're not mad. They're just reacting to impossible circumstances and uh, just unendurable, you know, situations that they're mm-hmm. in. And and of course they go mad in inverted commas because they're just like, there's no other possibility open to them. Like they're trapped, completely trapped. So um, what do you think of when you, when you think of a psychotic woman on in films? <laughs> In films, I mean, probably Carrie springs to mind. Um, I mean, psychotic is a word that I don't think I fully really know what the meaning of it is. I could look up the meaning. But I think um, 
psychotic when you know it's used quite lazily isn't it it's quite mm-hmm. banded around to mean just anyone who's acting a bit <laughs> acting a bit oddly um it's crazy it's mad woman unhinged there's so many variations of it they'll come back to the same thing though don't they yeah i mean we we were talking about um I mean, I I love to talk about Greek tragedy in relation Mm -hmm. to horror and stuff because I do think that it's sort of like, you know, in Greek tragedy, those women were were thought of as having something wrong with them, definitely. They wouldn't have been described as being mad or psychotic, but they were definitely warnings to the public, like, don't behave like this woman, isn't she awful? And don't behave like this woman, isn't she awful? But at the same time, there's still a sort of grandeur to those roles, you know. They don't, they sort of say, well, of course she killed her children because she was put in this situation. It's almost like there's something fated to it. Mm. Um, and we don't have that same sort of, uh, underst- you know, we have a different understanding now of psychology. So we think, no, there must have been something pathological going on for this mm. person to do this. Or uh, we medicalize it now. But in the past, it would just be like, oh, some shit happened and she took revenge <laughs> she just did this thing because of course she did because she's Medea that's her story that's the, her story <laughs> does that um and it's not like god she's a crazy woman it's just like oh she shouldn't have done that <laughs> but I love those sort of comparisons because I feel like horror films can have that power to elevate in a similar way where it's sort mm-hmm. of like uh yeah this person's doing something that is unacceptable um but we kind of appreciate their expression of uh of their will i suppose which they don't mm. get to otherwise enact as a female so it's a kind of wish fulfillment thing yeah and sometimes also in a very extreme way right because if you're and and i think this applies to other people not just women you know anyone who feels I think kind of stifled or like the things that they want are unacceptable or forbidden or sort of even, you know, they should just put them out of their heads completely. Like they shouldn't even be thinking about wanting those things. Um, Horror, horror I feel, has always had a a way to visualize that. And Mm -hmm. sometimes in like in very different ways, either through kind of comedy horror or through body horror through hauntings and ghost stories through you know all these different variations but a lot of them are just like I just want this thing so badly that I'm gonna transform it into this creature or this like uh, outrageous body horror or like monstrosity um, because I can't deal with the implications of wanting this thing in real life yeah yeah, and all of those sort of metaphors are really helpful and useful mm. and they're very fairy tale as well. Like uh, many of my favorite horrors, I when I sort of p- pull them apart, I'm like, oh, it's fairy tale. Mm-hmm. It's actually a yeah. really old story. It's a really old fairy tale. And, you know, again, you could say fairy tales are warnings and they're about punishing women in some ways of like, don't do this bad thing or this bad thing will happen to you and it's your fault. And, but you can also see it as really cathartic and sort of there's a sort of solidarity or like a comforting aspect of like 
this was happening to women in the past back then and it's still a danger and it's still and this is a a safe way of learning about it or a mm. safe way of dealing with it um i recently sort of i sort of would love to write an essay about this that like silence the lambs is bluebeard basically and oh. like the way that she goes into his lair and this sort of idea of like because in some versions of bluebeard she stays married to him basically mm-hmm, mm-hmm. She, she sort of finds a way of solving the riddle that he's killed lots of women um, and being okay with it. And it's just okay as long as she survives. And there's like, you know, um, Arabian Nights is similar. Like, mm. you know, he's killed all of his ex-wives and she still wants to be with him. And the way that she does it is by telling him a story. <laughs> and like, that means he lets her live. And she's like, oh, great, I'll stay married to him then. And you're like, what? Um but it's that kind of fascination about being in the beast's lair and then staying mm-hmm. in the lair, like not leaving it, just like marrying the beast, basically. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, I I would love to read that essay. <laughs> you actually made that's me probably it. That's probably I like have one idea and like yeah, that's it. There's no essay. <laughs> and I wanted to and I wanted to ask you, kind of going back to House of Psychotic Women. Um, your own film is included in the new expanded edition, Prevent. Is I'm honored to say that it is. Yeah. yeah. How do you how do you feel about it? And that how do you feel about, you know, Prevent came out in 2016, if I remember correctly. Um, how do you feel about the film being in in this new canon that Kayla created and also about that character with a few with a few years gone by now? I mean, it is really, it is really weird when I think about my journey with that book, mm. and then the fact that I'm in it. It's like, it's, it's like one of those really strange things. I've got the new edition on my shelf, actually. Um, I mean, it's amazing. It's great. I, I think, um, uh, yeah, I, I think it's really, it's great that there's loads of female directors in there now because there has mm. been this sort of explosion of female horror. Like, I'm really flattered to be in the, in the book with those other filmmakers as well I, yeah I think um I think I mean I'm just really proud of the film I think in a hopefully healthy way I've kind of moved on to the next project in my head so to me mm-hmm. it's like it's like revisiting old coursework or something from or you know <laughs> an old exam that I did that makes it sound really awful but I you know I am really proud of the film but I'm kind of so um moved on from it in my head and it was so inextricably connected to having a baby and stuff Mm. and then you know after that I started trying to make another film and then I got pregnant with another baby and then the lockdown happened and it just feels like to me it felt like I mean I, I think most female directors go through this that you you really just want your second film to happen quickly and it doesn't happen quickly it's sort of proven that female directors oh dear the female directors um have a much bigger gap between their first and second film and mm-hmm. me- loads of female directors never get to make another film even if yeah. they have a successful first film so like the anxiety that sort of went with that and kind of actually turning down a lot of projects it wasn't that I wasn't being offered to direct mm-hmm. other things it was just more that I'd got two young children and I just really didn't want to be away from them unless I had a really really good reason <laughs> to be yeah. away from them so I really just wanted to pursue my own projects that I felt 
passionate about and mm. not that it was just like a money gig or a sort of I mean my, meanwhile I was earning money by doing lots of writing and keeping the wolf from the door in that way yeah so my daughter's here with me now so it's like perfect timing <laughs> for talking about parenthood but um I think I very much sort of want to prove that I can make films that are not just about parenthood for a while mm-hmm. I got offered loads and loads of stuff which was just kind of more of the same Mm-hmm. Like, do you make horror about a baby? No, I've literally just made a horror about a baby. Oh, right. Okay. It's like people's imagination doesn't expand to, you know, you making stuff, other stuff. Um, and, you know, you do get offered opportunities as a female director, but quite often it'll be like very specific. You know, you're like, what? You, you only get offered things about women, basically. Yeah. Very specifically. Yeah, I feel like I'm really, really proud of that film. And mm. I'm really sort of outside of me now. It's become something beyond me. It's something other than me. It's like mm. another person, that film. I knew that it would be something that not many women had directed while pregnant and certainly not starred and directed while pregnant. And that sort of, I hoped that that would be, be a significant thing you know Mm. and I feel like because it is now in texts and books and stuff that it is like it's sort of I feel like it's been recognized as a sort of um an important thing for female Mm. filmmakers or a key sort of moment so yeah every time you're included in a publication or something it's like a bit of oh yeah okay and again you know again we didn't like win loads of awards or anything we won a couple but you know often sometimes critically you're more recognized sort of academically for your work than you are actually in terms of awards and stuff it's really weird because like um you know I'm too long in the tooth to really care about awards really now but um they do make making other things easier (laughs) that's Mm. the annoying thing about it you're like oh yeah you kind of just get a bit of a easier time for a short time to get get stuff made. Well, um, it's it's two different industries, isn't it? It's the people who are just looking at the film for the film's sakes, yeah. and the people who are looking at the film uh, to see it if it makes money, if they can cast someone from the film in the next thing, if they want to hire someone else who's been working on it, like the actual industry side that is making the work not just not looking at it yeah yeah and not looking at a bigger picture of Mm. of what um what is actually happening culturally but again it's 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 like what we were talking about it's like um it's sort of I mean I I think I've always been interested in people who don't play that game as well it's like Mm. You know, very early on, I really loved the work of like Shane Meadows and Paddy Considine and the fact they were just going out and making stuff. I was like, that totally inspired me. But they didn't, you know, you look back on their, what awards they've had, they really have not really won BAFTAs or anything. Like Hmm. they just are culturally important without being sort of recognised as such. Mm -hmm. It's like, you know, or being recognised a lot later on in their career. With all of the the guests for this mini series, I've been offering them to pick a film that's featured in Kayla's book, and and you had a number of great suggestions. But can we land it on Heavenly Creatures? Can you talk a little bit about why 
you picked that specific film? Um, I think it's really hard to categorise as a film. And I think it also gets overlooked quite a bit because of Peter Jackson's other work. Um, and for me, it was very mind-blowing seeing that film. It, I, I saw it at such a formative stage in my life where I don't think I'd seen many films about female friendships for a start, where there's two female protagonists. And I also hadn't really seen many films about the female imagination, I think. It's like this really unusual territory where I, I feel like you get a lot of films about male artists or male uh, fantasists or whatever, but you don't get many female characters that are about the interior. Mm-hmm. Female characters usually about the exterior. It's about the their boyfriend or their children or their job or something like that. And I, I felt like that was mind-blowing to me to see characters that were very much had built their own world from their own mind. Mm-hmm. And um, I really identified with that. Um, you know, it, uh, the, there's not that many films which have that as a sort of subject matter. Um, and, and actually, weirdly, it's sort of the context of my next film as well. So, um, yeah, it had a real impact on me. And th- this is a really interesting part of that you mentioned it, of kind of the uh, film, which, you know, not to sound very basic this early in the morning, but it's fundamentally visual. So it's very difficult to present the things that are going on inside the characters. Um how would you describe the the interior world, also the shared interior world that Juliet and Pauline have in the film? Um, I think what's really surprising when you return to the film is um, how many different sort of mixed media and strange things happen in the film. Because when I revisited it, I was like, oh my God, I've forgotten this whole section, which is sort of black and white and Orson Welles is chasing them and... Um, you know, there's all this sort of stress. Is it? Is it Orson Welles? I think it is Orson Welles. It's the actor from the Third Man, anyway. Yeah, it's Orson um, Welles. Yeah, so he's pursuing them, and um, then there's all the stuff with the sort of claymation, which is how they create their fantasy world that they've invented. Um, and then there's sort of use of CGI as well, which is sort of actually pretty restrained and pretty well done for the time, which I suppose is a bit of a a precursor to the brilliance of Lord of the Rings and stuff and how, how restrained it is and how, um, yeah, it, it's all, it's all a cohesive work of art, which makes you feel like it's, it's a, a singular perspective, or I suppose it's two people's perspective. And I think that's really, really well done, but also really tricky because you could categorise the film as horror, I suppose, loosely because there's a killing in it. Mm-hmm. Um, but really, it's fantasy. It's just very, very dark fantasy. Um, and I love fantasy films. And I, I feel like there was a real trend towards fantasy in the 80s, which is what I grew up with, you know, Dark Crystal and Legend. And really, those were my favourite films growing up. Um, all these kind of fairy tale films. And... Um, I feel like more it's it's probably almost belongs to that category but mm-hmm. it's it's sort of about the dangers of fantasy which I think is really fascinating to me as someone who is a bit of a fantasist um it's sort of it's sort of about what happens if you become too immersed in fantasy mm-hmm. and then that becomes horror fantasy becomes horror if you 
if you allow it to overtake your real life or that's the kind of message do you feel like it's do you feel like it's a cautionary tale in a while of too intense friendships or too and an, a wide imagination I guess so but I think it's very forgiving to the protagonists mm. it's very um I don't think it's sort of like uh cautionary in the sense of like let this be a warning to not let your teenage daughters read too much <laughs> um I think it's more a sort of to me it was uh it, it sort of made you realize how girls in that era might have been led to this particular sort of scenario i mean it's a folie de basically mm-hmm. which i'm really fascinated by that was a lot of the research that we did for sightseers for example mm-hmm. which is a film i did 10 years ago about um a couple who are serial killers um we did a lot of research of, of about folie de which is like two people doing actions they would not have otherwise done had they not met mm-hmm. so i think it definitely belongs to that category for these two girls would they have done what they did and certainly it seems like from their lives afterwards because it's a true life story from their lives afterwards they didn't go on to kill people they didn't carry on you know they had very lenient sentences because they were so young um and really you sort of go this was a situation a sort of freak situation that occurred because of these fantasy worlds they built because of the combination of their personalities and because of the particular situation or uh, place that they found themselves in you know that they're not sure whether there was a romantic relationship they sort of touch upon it slightly in the film um and you know there was all sorts of condemnation of uh you know homosexuality in that era so you Mm -hmm. kind of wonder how much the repression and the lifestyle that these girls were living sort of created a kind of madness a temporary madness within them um so I think the film is very is very um I don't think you come away from that film hating those girls you kind of really feel for them yeah and I think for any you know any girl or young woman or anyone really who has to either because of the whatever the circumstances of their life is or just because that's the way that they're built lives in their head a lot and spends a lot of time Mm -hmm. in their imagination it is it's such a powerful kind of um it feels very visceral like every time I've seen it and and I I was a kid with a very vivid imagination who read a lot of like fantasy and horror stuff and wrote a lot from a very early age so this creating your own world because the world that you exist in is just not enough is so Mm. vivid in the film and then the other thing that uh that I wanted to ask you about that really always stuck with me about this film and it's extreme because they end up committing a murder but they kind of do it to protect their friendship. And this intensity of this teenage, of this very like teenage girl friendship, this, you know, extreme BFFs. Um, what did you make of their of their friendship to each other, which feels to them in that moment in the film almost like life-saving or, you know, like something they need in order to exist? I think that's really interesting, this sense that they are defending this world that they've mm. built. They've definitely, and the and the way that it's shot, everything, you know, it, it's a very colourful film. There's lots of light in it, you know, for something that's a very dark subject matter. And it is like all these beautiful dreams they've created are going to be shattered by, they think, their parents, and in particular, one of their mothers. 
Um, and I think, I, I mean, I, I also think there is a power imbalance in their relationship, which I found really fascinating as well, like the struggle that they have. Because certainly when I was like a teenager, I would have a best friend that would be like best look, better looking than me. And I would just have to accept that. And I'd accept that I was the kind of beta uh, female in the in the scenario that she was like main character and I was just the sidekick and you know everyone would fancy her and she would have all the sort of romantic intrigue and I'd just be there sort of spectating and advising um, and I, I think a lot of young women identify with that as well it's not mm-hmm. necessarily that healthy a relationship it's fair. there's another film as well which I think is fantastic and I sort of align the two which is me without me without you oh is, I love it the Sandra uh, Goldbacher film yeah it's a brilliant film and again it's completely overlooked and I remember yes. seeing that and just going well this is me this is mm-hmm. I, I just identify with this so much and it's an untold story because nobody has bothered to think that a teenage girl's fairly uneventful life is that special to tell this story. Mm-hmm. Um, but it spans, you know, teenage year, a teenage friendship through to adulthood and the sort of unhealthy codependency between these two women. And um, it's kind of this thing of, you know, one girl is very dominant, but the reason she's so dominant is because of her own weaknesses within yeah. herself. She's perfectly aware of, but her friend just thinks she's, you know, the dog's proverbials. And she thinks, you know, you're in charge because you should be because you're the best. Mm-hmm. And it takes her until adulthood before she realizes that was wrong. That was unhealthy. This this person was pretty toxic in my life. And I think there's some element of that to Heavenly Creatures, that there was definitely a sort of a worshipping scenario going on where, um, you know, I read about the real life case as well, that um, mm-hmm. one of the girls was English. And so she was very exotic to everybody and she'd got an English accent and that was very entrancing and and probably in a way presented a kind of fantasy aspect as well, that you meet someone that is sort of feels out of your reality because they mm. talk like a princess or, you know, they they, they talk like you think a, a, a certain character might talk in a, in a book that you've read about the queen or something, you know, and that also helps to kind of build this unreal unreality. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I also think that then when the murder occurs in the film, it is one of the most shocking murders that I've ever seen in a film. Really? And I, I still find it really shocking when I watch it because there's something about the reality of it and it's done in very real time um, that you really, you feel like you're there and you feel like you know that person and it's mm-hmm. so transgressive what they've done and you feel really like oh no this is a mistake what have they done like um and it really did make me feel sick like the whole thing it's also such a visual departure from the rest of the film which is so you know like you mentioned so visually inventive so colorful so in their heads and inside their fantasy lives that they build for themselves that when the murder actually happens it's a it it really takes you out of it because it's like, no, no, this is, this is real. This is not their fantasy murder. This is what they're actually doing. And it's, it's stark and it's the sound of it. I still remember the sound. Yes. I remember the sound. sound. Yes. me too. All of those things. I actually remember that scene so vividly. It's like, I could replay it in my head. It's like, yeah, you, it's, it's so visceral and it's so, um, sort of pedestrian which i think is probably 
a lot of people's experience of like an accident or or violence or um anything like that is when you think back to it is how banal it is actually that it was mainly about you know very small details that led up to you know the to me it's when she's looking at that jewel and she starts talking to them about it mm. and it's so pathetic and sort of heartrending that she she wants them to come and look at this thing and they've planted it there to make her look at it and you just feel so sorry for the mother and she's just so real to you you're just like she's a real person doing real things having real reactions and you you just pity her so much and in that moment is so well done and works i think because of the way they set up the fantasy throughout mm. the whole film that suddenly reality crashes in um and i yeah i just think that's so cleverly done that division um and again like i would say my new film is very much about that i'm in the edit now and it's sort mm. of like oh reality crashes in at this point <laughs> and um and it is shocking and it is it's a, a violent wrench when it happens, you know, mm. for the character and for the audience, hopefully. Um, and I think that split is really fascinating to me. I think a lot of the work that I've done is about wanting fantasy to be real, but unfortunately reality, reality dominates in, in the end. Reality wins out. Um, uh, and I, I'm just con continually fan fascinated by that. Uh, that split and you know you mentioned a little bit uh about them before but what do you make of Kate Winslet and Melanie Linsky's performance because they they were also I think roughly the same age as the characters they were playing weren't they? they were teenage girls when they were doing doing this the the movie um what do you make of their performance because it's so it demands so much of them I mean, just just incredible. I think you kind of knew that they were both going to be stars. But I'm, I've got a massive acting crush on Melanie Linsky. Like I always have had. Like I was so delighted to see her in loads of TV shows recently and films because um, I think she's amazing. And for me, I mean, I think it was. It's a bit like um, My Summer of Love. I remember watching that, mm. which also I think is a fantastic film and knowing that Emily Blunt was going to get snapped up by Hollywood immediately and and not really understanding why that didn't happen for the other actress. And I think it was the same with Heavenly Creatures. I was a bit like, you know, obviously Kate Winslet, we all know what happened. <laughs> she ended up in Titanic and the rest of this history. Um, but for Melanie Linsky, that journey was different. And, you know, I'm sure she was working continually, but she was not on my radar personally. And, I, you know... For me, her performance as this kind of disenfranchised girl, I was just so fascinated by her. I've not seen many performances like that. Um, again, like maybe something like Welcome to the Doll's House. Mm. For me, I was like, I identify with this character so much. The This, you know, to be a young girl when you're not, nobody is telling you that you're pretty and you don't feel pretty and you don't know what your power is supposed to be. You haven't found your power because you're told that, being pretty is the most important thing, especially in that era. Um, and for her to kind of find this other way to explore her her willpower and her brain and, and you know, find a happiness for herself in a, in a different way. Um, to me, I just identify with that so much. And um, I just think she did that 
yeah, I just think it's an amazing performance. It's um yeah, I'm really glad you mentioned Welcome to the Dollhouse because there is, and you know, this film from the '94, I think, from memory, and there is this moment I think in '90s cinema where there's quite there's quite a few of these sort of weird disenfranchised, especially teenage girls, whether that's supernatural, like in the craft, or you know, um, or more ghost world or something. Yes, or or even like uh, something like oh, I'm thinking of Winona Ryder here. I mean, uh, Heather's is late late eighties, but still kind of counts. Or even stuff like Reality Bites and like these beautiful, you know, teenage girls or young women who were just not the they would have never been the lead in the movie in the eighties, if that makes sense, mm-hmm. and kind of stepping into their world and how they look at the world um becomes so transgressive, even though it shouldn't be. It's just it's just real life or, you know, we're in their heads. But it's such a I think kind of this moment in film history really started to pay attention to them versus to the the tall blonde kind of leading ladies of the previous decade. But I did kind of want to ask you as well, you know, you you mentioned at the start that this film might be a little bit obscured by the rest of Peter Jackson's filmography, which I think is true. You know, when you'd make juggernauts like Lord of the Rings, it's difficult not to have everything else kind of become curios. Um, but what do you think? It's quite anomalous as well with his work. Yeah. Right? I think... Um... I think people, again, it's this typical thing, which, which I talk about a lot, which is overlooking female comp- contribution. Of course, like Fran Walsh wrote the screenplay with him. And I just think her mark is all over it, I'm sure. Like, um, But it's really hard to disentangle her contribution from his. So again, mm-hmm. um, and I, I feel like... I, to me I'm like she probably pursued that story like she was the person that was like oh I'm fascinated by this oh I've read about it in the paper oh my god I've been obsessed with this for years you know but you don't get interviews as many interviews with her there are mm-hmm. they are some out there but um to me you know it's so when you think about how many it, I mean partly it's Tolkien's fault but <laughs> there's hardly any female characters in Lord of the Rings as we know um and for him to have these two female characters, it just comes out of left field. You're like, they're they're so powerful and so um so well-rounded as characters. Mm-hmm. Um that I feel like her I'd love to see her being interviewed about it and, and talk about it. I'm sure there are interviews out there, but um yeah, I feel like her contribution to it probably gets overlooked. And what do you think is sort of the the legacy of the film? Can, can you see its fingerprints on any other films that you've seen recently? Um, I don't know, actually. I mean, um, I know that people do talk about it in very, very hallowed terms in, in the film world now. I think people do recognise it as a, as a classic. Um, but I don't know how many people really tell female friendships in a really convincing way. Um, or how many people really focus upon that as a kind of, oh yeah, that's gonna sell. <laughs> I don't know. Um, to me, it's a when people make teen stuff, they tend to make about groups of teens, don't they? Mm-hmm. Especially horror, sort of like a group of teens. And I love that intimacy of that kind of one-on-one 
obsessive relationship because mm-hmm. really that is it is the folia der thing that I was talking about. That is when people enter into a really strange territory because when you've got a group of people, there's going to be one person going, no, I don't want to do that because it's too weird or this is it's not my bag. I don't, you know, and there's, or there'll be a split or there'll be like a, a schism or there'll be people, you know, it's just laws of averages, isn't it? If you've got mm-hmm. five people, their behavior is not going to go to that extreme generally unless it's the manson cult or something that's a whole other thing um you know and so i i kind of feel like that one-on-one friendship element maybe it's the internet or something has kind of destroyed that because now we have a whole audience of people telling us what's wrong or right (laughs) generally don't we like if they if they'd had the internet those girls would they have done what they did like Oh, I think they they probably would have. I think what's really interesting. <laughs> maybe they would have done it on a bigger scale. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> maybe they would, they would have, have just. Yeah, or hacked the mum and done something with her, like finances, or ruined her life in a much in an even more permanent yeah. way. Yeah, exactly. But I do, I do think that I haven't seen as much about those kind of intimate friendships because mm. I do think there is a sense of like. Um, well, I think solitude is a is a bigger thing. There's people, teenagers, it's more seems to be solitude plus the internet. Like, um, I think that bit that isolation that you have as a teenager in the past, you would find a friend if you were lucky, mm. or I would, I you know, I disappeared into books. Really, I would like sit in my bedroom and draw, and listen to records. <laughs> That's what I would do, and that was how I kind of built my fantasy world in my head. That I didn't, you know, I had like. I had best friends and stuff, um, but they weren't as probably obsessive and weird as me. But <laughs> um, but yeah, I I don't know if that I don't know if there's the same space for mm. films about obsessive friendships. I haven't seen I haven't seen many. I'd like to see I'd like to see a new one. I've seen a lot more films about sort of parasocial obsessive friendships like Ingrid Goes West and things like that because of the internet because it just gives us yeah. room for um for women obsessing with other women kind of platonically mm-hmm. um but oh, I must not, see that. That's good. It it's it's really good but it is very it's very much about you know influencer culture and developing a relationship that is one-sided with someone on the internet but this you know this folio dude this um pulling at each other all the time and pushing each other onwards even if it means doing bad things it's some it's a very different type of dynamic than when you're following a leader like in a cult or a group there's always there's always someone who's the leader um yeah and i guess as well on the internet it's like you could find you can find a weirdo that is like you they Mm. might live in another country or another state or another you know town or city or something but you can find them yes (laughs) and And you can actually there's more opportunities for the kind of creating that madness and that you know i guess that's what incels and stuff is about is you're finding Mm. other groups of other people that have the same extreme extreme beliefs and you can push the extreme beliefs even further and create new I mean I suppose that is really what a lot of conspiracy theorists and stuff they're building fantasy worlds for themselves Hmm. um 
They're just Golden not fantasy quite future. charming and sweet as like the heavenly creatures, heavenly creatures sort of worlds where they, it was very childish what they were doing really, wasn't it? It was, it was sort of scraps of their culture, which would be mm-hmm. probably quite tenuous and quite small, you know, books, a couple of films that they would be going to see at the movies. Um, and that's what I found as a, as a teenager as well, that really, what you were interested in was a real excavation job, you know, or you would re-listen to things over and over again because you couldn't afford many records, you know. You would you would revisit stuff over and over and over. And I was say I was talking the other day to like my friend that um, you know, my best friend from childhood, like if we fancied someone, you couldn't stalk them on Facebook. You would have to draw a picture of them. Like we literally <laughs> used to do that. Like we would hand draw we go, oh, this guy, oh, he's, you know, we'd seen him, but we'd never taken a photo of him. We'd never, mm-hmm. we didn't know him. Well enough. And so we would sit and draw pictures, like literally by candlelight, like witches, <laughs> like medieval witches. We would just sit there <laughs> with a biro, what sort of lined paper, homework, you know, homework book. You draw a picture of this guy and that would be it. That would be your totem that you could re-look mm-hmm. at as a drawing that you've done of this person she just seems so ancient and Jane Austen style um but you know that was the way that was the only way so it was just like mm-hmm. any of your fantasies were just so hand-built I suppose mm. and um I think that was what's great about the claymation I want there's there's this um really disturbing animation um which is called the adventures of Mark Twain um and it's on YouTube and there's this bit where these children are tempted by the devil and it's done with claymation. Mm-hmm. And I wonder how influenced, whenever I see heavenly creatures I'm a, and I see, it's called Barovnia or something, their fantasy world, and it's all clay people. And I always wonder how much um, it might have been influenced by this Adventures of Mark Twain because it really is quite similar. And it's the way the characters sort of crumble and then reassemble as other mm-hmm. things fight battles and stuff um and it's about the weakness of humanity you know it's sort of like how easily shaped people are by by influences which i think is a really powerful idea that you know the devil can just shape you into doing what he wants you to do and and i think that's what's fascinating about these clay people and heavenly creatures it's like they've made these people they're they're influencing them they're they have such power over the they can rip them apart you know they could mm-hmm. just destroy them in a second. And um, I just think that's such a brilliant blend of like childhood, but also sort of terrifying <laughs> as well. Children that are terrifying that want I to. I mean, I'm very, very into children's animations that's actually secretly or not so secretly terrifying or full on horror movies. Um, yeah. But- Alice, I'm conscious that you have to go back into the edit. So I'm going to let you go. But thank you so much for for your time and for your insight on heavenly creatures and a house of psychotic women as well oh thank you i've really enjoyed it it's been really fun to revisit the film and the book good i'm glad amazing (laughs) 